0: Tonight's reading is from Second Kings uh, ver- uh, chapter five verses one through fourteen. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, said the king of Aram, replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with with me? When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elisha sent a message to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The word of the Lord.
1: overwhelming, when something makes you realize how limited your perception is, limited might be a gentle way of putting it, narrow, biased, half-blind, I mean, mostly we can't even help it. Whatever our intent is, it's like how our brains work. Bees and eagles and butterflies all can see more colors in the world than we're even capable of seeing. There's a part of our brain called the default mode network that filters all the sensory data we might otherwise be aware of in order to help us function efficiently. Yes, I've been reading about things I don't understand, but I memorized that word, default mode network. Without this sensor, our brains might not be able to handle all the sensory input. It would be too chaotic. Still, we lose a lot of our capacity for conscious awareness for the sake of this efficiency that serves the individual. And this is not a great thing for the well-being of the whole for the planet. We need jolts. We need, this isn't a scientific opinion, mercy to follow us around and breathe in our ears and open our eyes. It can be disturbing when we recognize the limitation of our perception, and it can be like grace opening a portal to a glimpse of God. That might be overstating it, but something like that. Mercy isn't tied to the rhythms of the expected. Reading this passage over the 4th of July got me thinking about our limited perspectives. We celebrate the day ostensibly to commemorate our independence from Britain. When our British friend and theologian James Allison was here at House of Mercy in the fall, he posed the question in a very kind and non-confrontational and graceful way, not in these words, but still the question, yeah, and how's that been going for you? Enjoying your guns and your mass shootings and your lack of health care? And your presidential rather than parliamentary system of government which leaves you more open to a democracy-destroying dictatorship? If it hadn't been for the revolution we celebrate on the 4th of July, the British Empire in all likelihood would have abolished slavery far earlier than the U.S. did, and with less bloodshed. American settlers were appalled that the British wanted to limit westward expansion, seemed to side with the Indians over the white man. The Declaration of Independence attacks King George III for backing merciless Indian savages. I mean, I like picnics and grilling and fireworks and family celebrations, but they do say that patriotism is the last refuge to which the scoundrel clings. is the most political book in the Bible. You couldn't quite call it patriotic, but it is blatantly, purposefully limited in its perspective. It doesn't even try to have some expansive worldview. Its purpose is to frame history to fit its agenda. Israel, unlike the U.S., loses their battle with the empire, loses their land, and the people are forced into exile... The people who wrote Kings make sense of this catastrophe by saying, well, it's because the kings and people didn't successfully wipe out all the gods of the other lands they moved into. They accommodated to idols. This explanation served to explain the catastrophe, the people weren't faithful to the God of Israel, and it served to create a loyalty to the emergent monotheistic faith, the emerging institution. The agenda is clear, it isn't subtle, it's not trying to be. Every king in the Book of Kings is judged solely on whether he accommodated to idols. The a judgment is black and white, as if there were no other colors. But then there are these stories dropped in every once in a while that really disrupt this narrow structure. And the story we read tonight is one of those places. The book of Kings is going on. It's all blah, 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 particular, formulaic language, all black and white, this king, that king. And then swoosh, we get this colorful story where people who are not kings run the show. The book is all palaces and politics. And then suddenly we're reading this little story about a man and his skin problem. It's almost funny in the context of the Book of Kings, really. The narrative cuts away from its usual rhythm about the goodness or badness of kings, and lets in this whole other cast of characters, unnamed servants and slaves, people not usually considered powerful, have the power here in this story. They drive the events. It's disruptive to the efficient perception of the default mode network. Let the cacophony begin. The characters are surprising in the context. Naaman is a general in the army of the enemy that will defeat the people of God. And not only that, he's a leper, lest his outsiderness escape us. Naaman is not the poor and oppressed outsider who needs a hand he is a rich, powerful, violent, enemy, general, foreigner, oppressor, leper, idolater who needs healing. And it's a young girl, a little girl, little, the text points out, who suggests to name the path of healing. The Book of Kings has almost entirely to do with kings, With a world of the ruling class, it's about history-making, world-changing, significant events, big people in big places, and suddenly the author takes us to Naaman's living room, where the voice of a little girl sets in motion this whole series of unlikely events. She's exactly the person the power structures are oblivious to, and her voice is absolutely vital to the story. The girl suggests Naaman go to the prophet of Israel, and inexplicably, Naaman listens to her. He goes to his king, and the king of Syria says, "Okay, I'll write a letter, and you take the letter to the king of Israel." And so Naaman is off to try to get rid, to try to get free from his skin problem. He brings this whole huge entourage with him—silver, gold, festal garments, chariots, and horses. I can't really tell if the story is trying to make fun of Naaman. Like, did he really need this whole entourage? And the king of Israel for sure comes across as not wise, not skilled in the art of seeing. Naaman, in spite of all his festal garments and gold, is coming to the king in weakness, really. He's a leper seeking healing. He's vulnerable. But when the king sees him coming, he sees a threat, and he is so scared. He reads the letter, and then he rips his clothes and flings himself to the floor and cries, am I God to give death or life? A bit melodramatic. He is certain that the letter is a ploy, an excuse to make war, and he is totally wrong. In this story, we really see the limits of the king's reality. Thank God for the prophets. A prophet is someone who sees differently than the king. Elisha. Whenever Elisha appears in the Book of Kings, it's like the black and white world gives way to rainbows, practically. I mean, it's like blah, 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 king, 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 same words, same words, and then blam, there's this mysterious little wizard, shaman, healer being who has surprising and intimate encounters with a lot of people of no import. He brings a friend's little boy to life. He helps a widow pay her rent. He feeds people and gives them something to drink. He is always operating outside the institution. Probably shouldn't call him a wizard a consciousness-expanding healer skilled in the art of seeing. Elisha hears about the king's reaction to Naaman and asks, why are you ripping your clothes and shrieking and laying on the floor? Elisha doesn't see a threat. He sees Naaman, a man who needs healing. And he says, come on over to my house. So Naaman goes over to Elisha's, but Elisha doesn't run out to greet him. He doesn't even come to the door. He sends his helper out. The helper tells Naaman, Go and bathe seven times in the Jordan, and you shall be healed. I mean, you could see this all as sort of a calculated diss on Elisha's part. But I mean, I don't know. I doubt the prophet gave much time to calculating how to show his contempt. He was probably just back in his garden behind the house, picking mushrooms, plucking deadheads off the marigolds, or in the kitchen, trying to get the sauce right, busy smelling and tasting and seeing, letting all the sensory data in. But naturally, this doesn't go over well with the dignitaries. You don't ignore the dignitaries because you're having lunch with your grandma. You roll out the carpet and you take selfies. Naaman is outraged by the treatment. Some unimportant person comes out to tell him to dip seven times in a muddy little river. This isn't the path to healing he expects. The story juxtaposes these different realities. The royal reality and this other place where most people live and most mercy happens. What Elisha says will heal Naaman seems too simple. It seems undignified. Naaman wants the prophet at least to wave his hands over him. He's mad at his treatment and he wants to leave. But then, if we still haven't noticed whose voices make the mercy happen in this story, some unnamed servants with no official capacity come up to Naaman and they say, Not great." eloquent, convincing, poetic words, but, uh, excuse me, but you came all this way. Maybe it won't help, but it couldn't hurt. Why don't you just get in the water? You would have done some big thing if the prophet asked, so why not just do this little thing? And however unlikely it seems that this would be the thing that would ever get the big enemy of the people of God, army sergeant leper, to hear the words of God and listen, it does. Naaman goes down and dips himself seven times in the muddy little Jordan, and his flesh is restored like the flesh of a child. In the vast array of private and public actions, and political and economic decisions, and the enormous and incomprehensible complexity of the history of the world in this proliferating incoherence of humanity, God moves, though not usually how or where you might expect. God follows us down our insignificant, inadequate human paths, breathing mercy into our ears. Mercy infuses the world, though we don't often see it. In this little muddy river, he nearly refused to even enter. Naaman finds that his shame is washed away. So he goes back to Elisha's house and he's like, Wow, now I know the true God. He says, now I understand that there is no God in the whole world except the God of Israel. And he presses Elisha to receive his gratitude with these gifts. But Elisha doesn't want him. And so Naaman looks around and he says, okay, well then look, I'm going back to Syria where the God of Israel isn't worshipped. So let me take two mule loads of dirt so I can build an altar to the God of Israel to Yahweh, because from now on, I will worship no other god. But he continues rambling. I'm not going to worship any other gods anymore, ever. But, except of course, pardon me for this, but actually, you know, when I get back to Syria, and I go into the temple of my master's god, and the king leans on my arm so that I bow down to the Syrian god, okay. When I bow down to the Syrian God, may the Lord pardon me. Remember about how the whole agenda of the book of Kings is to show how letting idolatry slide was the downfall of the people of God, led to utter catastrophe? Everything in the context of this book would make us expect that Naaman would turn into a pillar of salt. At least the leprosy would return. At least the prophet would condemn him. But Elisha says, Okay, go in peace. This isn't just farewell. It isn't get out of here, you sniveling idolater. It's a benediction. It means you are entirely embraced by the love of God. Go in peace. Elisha doesn't offer name and ethical advice. He has no solution to propose. He doesn't teach him how to resist the god of Syria. He just grants him freedom to rest in the peace of God. It's like this hot little ball of mercy dropped into this predictable story of the kings. And it disrupts the efficient ordering of our limited perception. Jesus brings up this story of Naaman when he announces his ministry in the synagogue to the prisoners and the captives and the poor and the blind. And it enrages the people so much that they want to hurl him off a cliff. Maybe they'd forgotten how disruptive mercy can be. Forgotten its potential to unravel our usual categories, our ways of seeing. I invite you to participate in a disruption to your usual mode of seeing, to partake of communion.